We're going to a film premiere. We're in full possession of all our marbles. Sure you are. Well, it had to happen. I mean, sitting up there to all hours of the night writing those creepy mysteries. Happen to anybody. It's not your fault. No one has, as you so delicately put it, wigged out. Scream, come up with something. I've been some fusses for hours over this precious soup stock. He says good soup comes from good stock. Pure, creamy peanut butter dotted with crispies. I'm sure you're as pleased as I am. <laughs> you must write down the recipe for me right now. I only made enough for six. It will give me a chance to reveal my culinary skills. I will give you crepe, Wendler. Crepe? But they take such a long time. Yes. Well, I would like to know, though, uh, how did you know it was me? We didn't. No, no, no. I don't think so. Why are you telling us all this? Very few people would kill to prevent the discovery of a theft. Unless that discovery would cost them much, much more. All of which was very logical but not very factual, until we began to think of Amanda's murder and the theft of the brooch together. That's marvelous. That really is marvelous. Wow. Meow. Kapow. I'm Tim. I'm Shruti. And this is Music for Films, the underground film podcast. And this is part two of a program where we talk about films based on The Bat Whispers. This time, it's the 1958 Vincent Price version, starring Price and Agnes Moorhead, and also a TV version from 1960, starring Jason Robards and Helen Hayes. You excited, Shruti? I am. We had fun last time, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we did. Uh, but a lot's happened since we made the last show. Trump's gone. We're still indoors. We're, we're still living under COVID lockdown restrictions here in um, Scotland. I mean, a lot of restraint on my part. I am a massive Rangers fan. I should be in Glasgow setting up <laughs> fireworks right now, and I'm doing this podcast instead. He wouldn't stand out in a Rangers match nah. at all. No, but Let's yeah, write in. the the George Square in Glasgow is rammed with thousands of Rangers fans because they've won the Scottish Football League. But uh, yeah, there goes the end of our lockdown. Rangers fans, a great bunch of lads. <laughs> there's been positive things as well. Trump's gone, and there's a new president, and there's a new vice president in the United States, and. Uh, one of the things that I was very heartened by was right before President Biden and Vice President Harris made their exception speech that they'd won, because they did win. Uh, yes, they did win. That definitely happened. Before they definitely accepted that they'd won, there was a kind of like a pre-announcement bit where they got on the stage, and uh, some of the music that was played was uh, Horn Notes, You Make My Dreams Come True. It's a lovely track, uh, but also 
Philadelphia, the vote for Philadelphia, before the vote from Arizona and Georgia came in, it was the vote for Philadelphia that, that kind of sealed the deal, made obvious that the Democrats had won. And you make my dreams come true. Aww. Great to have a president who's musically literate. But speaking of music, you know, Swami, uh, you've got an article coming out soon about a piece of research you've been doing, and this is a pretty big deal. Do you care to explain to us what's up? It will be a blog coming up in Film Quarterly about uh, this film that I came across during my PhD research, which is uh, Ulti Ganga, or the uh, Ganges Flows in Reverse from 1942, and the title alludes to um, nature uh, being bent in unnatural ways. Um, and the film is uh, imagines a world where uh, women have taken over the world officially. So oh they've just woken up. Uh, it's cancel culture gone mad. It really is. You're just cancelling my masculinity. Yeah, What's going I mean, on? you know, this is all all to all the fault of universities. This is what happens when universities cancel people like Katie Hopkins. Political correctness gone mad. Uh, but yes, women uh, rise up in revolt and uh, blokes now have to sit sit at home and take care of the kids and do household chores and uh, women go out and earn money. So this is uh, one of the lost films that our friend PK Knight told us about when we interviewed him uh, shortly before he died. Yes. So we asked him what his top ten list were of films that he couldn't find when he was trying to save uh, India's film heritage and... Here he is telling us about it. Ulti Ganga is an interesting subject because it is a kind of a hypothetical situation. Suppose if uh, the roles are changed between the male and the female and the females do most of the work which the males do and vice versa. The males have to do the cooking and, and the women have to go to office. And uh, So it is predicting a situation where the world will be taken over by the women and the males have to work as second fiddle. So at one level it's a funny film, but another film also, at other level also it uh, tries to give you some thought. I don't know, I've not seen the film, but I, I know the background of the film is something like, that's what people who have seen the film they liked immensely because of that, uh, the, the theme itself is very daring. That I found it quite uh, interesting, even as an idea. Ulti Ganga was made by Minerva Movie Tone Studios, a film company set up by the great Indian film actor Saurabh Modi, not to be confused with India's current Prime Minister, and they had this to say about Modi's film based on Hamlet. And then there was another film called Khun Ka Khun, that is based on Hamlet, you know, with Saurabh Modi's first uh, attempted filmmaking, because he was a great artist in the Parsi theatre a great voice. So he made his debut in this uh, version, Indian, what is that, um, Hindi word, Indune, Hindune, Urdu. I think the language is Urdu because it was known as Hindustani at that time. And it is based on the, it is done in the typical Shakespearean style, you know, with that same kind of costumes from whatever stills we have of that. 
I also must add that uh, Uldi Ganga has a very interesting connection to the history of science fiction mm-hmm. literature because the uh, story is based on one of the first pieces of feminist science fiction, which is a, a, a short story called Sultana's Dream wow. by uh, Rukhaya Sikhawat Hussain, which appeared in uh, this Indian magazine called the Indian Ladies Magazine, which was the first magazine um, edited by Indian women for Indian women and uh, Sultana's Dream first appeared in that magazine and uh, the film's plot is based on yeah based on the short story absolutely fascinating how did you find this evidence I mean obviously we haven't got the film you've got evidence of it so now we know what we're looking for but how did you find it so I believe that uh, the song booklet which is a promotional booklet for the film Song booklets were a very common um, part of a film's promotional strategy in the 1930s, which would be a small booklet which had lyrics to all the songs in the film uh, in multiple languages and also a short plot summary and synopsis and the cast information. And when you're a researcher on early Indian film, where a lot of films are missing, these booklets are a very important uh, source of um, historiographical information. Uh, so I believe the song booklet is in the National Film Archive of India um, and you could if you go there you could look at it as a digital resource but I was able to hold the physical song booklet in my hands at the the Shantaram Library in Bombay and so you've now got the images of that and you've got the song lyrics and they'll be published and film archivists and researchers like yourself know what they're looking for and looking yes. for this this lost classic film what, what would it mean to you if the film itself turns up because obviously what we're doing by talking about it now on the internet on our podcast is we're inviting people in, in film libraries and film researchers if you've got a can of film and some of the scenes look like the images that are going to appear in your article um it's a big deal it's a huge deal it's like um you know it's it's like the difference between having a very detailed description of the Mona Lisa and you having to work off that description to understand how important Mona Lisa is to the history of art and actually being able to see the painting with your own eyes. But what's the significance of the film? If the film turns up, what's it going to mean to you? Obviously P.K. Nair, it was on his list, so that it's got some meaning just because of that. But beyond that what do you think is the meaning of it because it ties up with your research into women in the independence movement doesn't yeah, it? yeah I mean the film is from 1942 so it's always interesting to find another film which is from so close to the Indian independence which is from 1947 but in 1942 uh, is when um, Gandhi launched the Quit India movement which was one of the biggest sort of civil disobedience movements in the country and one of those big events that really got us you know got the ball rolling to becoming India becoming politically independent in 1947 Um, and one of the most important things about 1942 during Quit India was the fact that um, average Indians were uh, you know engaging in civil disobedience in their own ways which included, you know, being out and about in public, going to demonstrations, um, doing a um, 
fast uh, unto death and from what we know about the film in the film uh, women are depicted using uh, are depicted to be using the same techniques to sort of get their way um, with the patriarchy and effectively toppling the patriarchy um, Modi was uh, closely associated with a lot of leaders prominent leaders from the Indian political independence movement so obviously he he thought of himself as a patriot uh, but it's interesting that someone who would approve of civil disobedience as a means for gaining India's independence uh, then used that as a way to sort of distort women seeking more political rights and more social rights so the film is very misogynistic uh, from its descriptions but it's interesting that the way in which women are seen are shown to be um, you know achieving their political means are the same ways which Indians Indian citizens were using to uh, demand independence from uh, the empire well that sounds absolutely fascinating and I'm really looking forward to this article being out I mean it's been part of our lives for a couple of years now we haven't been able to talk about it about cinema and the sounds of cinema are one of the kind of connecting threads in our lives yes. I mean, they, they connect us to our own past but they connect us to other people and if through this sort of bit of film detective work that you've done and us talking about it uh, on music for films means that eventually we find one of these movies that is at the moment lost then job done So yes, I mean one, one hopes with all these things at the moment while we're recording this, we're, we're making this in March in 2021, you hope that all these things aren't false dawns. But yeah, we've been making these shows because n normally music for films, uh, it was a radio show, it may be a radio show again someday, but at the moment we're just doing it as a podcast. Uh, you can find all the old shows on thebeekeepers.com or on our SoundCloud or on your podcasting application of choice. But we used to make shows where we kind of would wander around somewhere, talk about a connection between a place and a film, and then go into the studio and have a, a conversation about music and films, and music for films, that have shaped people's lives. Uh, but we, we can't do that, and we haven't been able to do that for more than a year, because there is a global pandemic, and for most of that time we've been indoors. So what we're doing is we're making what we call box set music for films where nowadays what with YouTube and archive.org and different streaming platforms like Amazon and Hulu and Netflix you can watch most old films you can watch most new films now it's more kind of an issue of time really uh, which of them are you, you going to make time for and I think there are many interesting good old films which don't have a DVD commentary so we've done some shows about uh, Toby Young's film uh, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People 
uh, we made some shows about the Mexican Batwoman as well and we made a box set about the Andromeda strain uh, so these ones we're talking about some of the inspiration for Batman obviously there's going to be more Batman movies more Superman movies there have been lots of announcements about every single DC property that you could think of is now either an HBO show or there's some Elseworlds movie in development in the previous show we talked about the films that are based on Mary Robert Reinhardt's book The Circular Staircase but before we get into this second set of films based on the same Broadway play and book what do you think of that the little kind of sound montage that we had at the top of the show with the Snoop sisters sounds it's going to go splendidly it's going to be a smash I feel it in my bones sounds the word hasn't been used since D.W. Griffith you know it's odd I'm the vampire but it's your fangs that are showing dear it's good fun that while we're doing research for this show um, I discovered that although Agnes Moorhead and Vincent Price were only paired together in the 1958 The Bat, Helen Hayes, who's in the second of these movies, the TV adaptation that we're going to talk about, was in The Snoop Sisters in one episode with Vincent Price. And it was on NBC, I think, uh, in the same slot as Banachek, George Pepper's Polish detective. Because you're from the 90s, you, you don't know anything no. about any of these American detective shows before superheroes. Was this like Colchak? Yeah, Colchak the Night Stalker. Okay. Yeah, that's kind kind of the same right. area. Before superhero TV and before that, before the Shield and the CSI franchise dominated the, the TV ecology. Back in the seventies, you had all these quirky TV detectives who had their own bit of shtick that they did. There was. Ironside, who was in a wheelchair. There was um, the Rockford Files. Rockford lived in a camper van. Didn't come out much. But when he did, he solved crimes. There was Frank Cannon, the fat detective. There were a ton of them. So George Peppard's shtick was he was the Polish detective. It was kind of a sort of dry run of him as Hannibal in the 18. And this was paired with the Snoop Sisters, which was Helen Hayes and also Mildred Natwick, you could hear there, who's another redoubtable character actor, probably best known for her TV roles. I think people would also recognise her from she's in the court jester. Oh, the pestle with the vessel. The vessel with the pestle. What about the palace from the chalice? Not the palace from the chalice, the chalice from the palace. Where's the pellet with the poison? In the vessel with the pestle. She's in Barefoot in the Park um, with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. Very interesting uh, actor, Mildred Natwick. So she's paired with Helen Hayes in the Snip Sisters and they were a pair of detective uh, story writing sisters who live in a house together you might see a bit of a connection to mm. the Vincent Price the Bat when we get onto that with Agnes Moorhead in the, the role of the, uh, the, uh, the lady writer in that it's rather a sweet episode that one uh, a, a, a Black Day for Bluebeard which has got Vincent Price playing an over the hill horror right. actor which is quite sweet because yeah. he wasn't. That like he was never. There was never a time when Vincent mm. Price was, was past his prime at all. The scenes in the cinemas, cinema are quite interesting. Oh, with all the Frankenstein yeah. equipment where they're doing the experiment. Yeah, that's great. 
because that's an interesting thing about Price is he he wasn't in the Universal horror cycle he was in the fly and the return of the fly but so he kind of played one of the great monsters but not not in that universal cycle but you get to see him doing the whole kind yeah. of she's alive thing with they broke out all the old frankenstein equipment what do you think about mort sal as a shyster lawyer could you get away with that nowadays a kind of prominently no. intellectual jewish no, no guy who'd been no, blacklisted dude, no. playing a Slimy Hollywood no, map uh, agent. No. Yeah, that's a little bit awkward, isn't it? It's ten bucks well spent. <laughs> Why? The woman screamed. You mean you planted a shill? Naturally, we're going for big stakes, Michael. Will you wrestle the werewolf? I got two of the best fighters in town. And Tony Grimes is in that as well. He's in the most terrific 1970s exploitation films. My favourite bit about it, though, is Roddy McDowell. Because, of course, very famously, Roddy McDowell and Vincent Price were a couple. And, of course, once Price married Coral Brown, also famously bisexual, she plays the lesbian TV producer in The Killing of Sister George, who uh, tries to nick Beryl Reed, or succeeds in nicking Beryl Reed's girlfriend in that movie. But when Coral Brown hooked up with Vincent Price making Theatre of Blood, and then shacked up with him in Hollywood Vincent Price was still seeing Roddy McDowell and everyone was cool about it so in the, in that edition of the Snoop Sisters Roddy McDowell is, is in this with Vincent Price and there's that bit in the foyer where there's a kind of bit of a mm. bit of an ch- exchange of words between yes. Price's character and uh, Tammy's you know his wife and Roddy McDowell walks past and there's just a bit of a kind of I'll, mm, I'll see you later at home talk, you know let's talk about this later at home <laughs> With Vincent Price. That's quite sweet. Wonderful, yeah. yeah it's good fun. So, sounds like good fun for everyone involved. Like a lot of these TV things from the 70s, even though some of these performers were a little bit past their prime, uh, it's lovely to see them kind of having one last lap and, you know, you get to see Vincent Price doing the Frankenstein thing properly and you get to see Roddy McDowell's rapport with, with Vincent. And of course, McDowell later on went on to play a character based on Vincent Price in Fright Night, where he's an old horror actor who actually is a vampire hunter. But in that, the original idea was that Vincent Price should play that role. But by the time Fright Night was made, he was much too old. He's in Edward Scissorhands, a Tim Burton film, but he's only got a very brief cameo because he was quite fragile by that time. So Roddy McDowell stepped into the role. And... The original idea was that Vincent Price's character should be Vincent Price. And McDowell said, but this character is a kind of broken-down old horror actor. Well, Vincent Price isn't no. a broken-down old actor. So he, he, Roddy McDowell plays a kind of... someone who's as theatrical as Vincent Price, but uh, perhaps more of the Caribbean sort of end of the, the spectrum of winding down as a performer. Yeah, it's, it's good fun, and there's a, there's a remake with David Tennant in the McDowell role, which is it, it should work better that's than it like, does. Oh, no, oh, that's disappointing. But it's still, it's still fun. I mean, you know, at least we get to see Tennant in a horror role, which I'd love to see. Oh, him play yeah, like in a, a proper horror, horror role. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'd be terrific. Yeah. Imagine Tennant as Dracula. 
Well, he did um, play. Um, I'll have to look at this up. He played the um, the the serial killer, the British serial killer. Oh yeah, Dennis Nelson. Yeah. Dennis Nelson, and he was quite good in it. He'd be he'd be great in it. Yeah. So to recap, uh, last time you looked at these two Roland West versions of The Bat, a.k.a. The Bat Whispers, The Bat was based on a very successful thriller, The Circular Staircase, written by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Uh, that then went on to become a very successful Broadway play, The Bat. Um, if people are aware of it, they probably remember it from... You know, there's that very famous poster for a... A stage production of Dracula. Yes. From 1920, of this green vampire bat face, and it's got written under it "Better Than the Bat," which is a review from the New York Herald Tribune of the 1928 production of Dracula with the Ghosty Inn mm. uh, at the Ford Theatre. But that poster has now been sort of commercially reproduced, and you often see it in people's houses. Um, it's one of those kind of movie adjacent posters which you know one often sees. And that's what it's referring to, is is this play. So, mm, what can we say about this 1958 version relative to... What I think... Is it fair to say what we felt about the Ronan West versions is that Ronan West is an interesting director. Uh, there are many things about the silent version of the talkie which are worth your time. It's a great visual. electrifying in bits. The visuals are very interesting. It's got a very nice sort of pace to it, very dynamic, things are happening. Whereas, uh, by comparison, this uh, 1958 version is a bit... Flat? Um, idyllic. <laughs> Takes its time. Languorous? Uh, yeah. Low energy. <laughs> Low energy. Uh, so, Roland West, I think, deserves more attention than he perhaps gets. He's only really known of in relation to... Mm his relationship with Thelma Todd and her mysterious death which we talked about last time and that was really what led the poor man to have a breakdown and, and ended his career but you see in these two versions of the bat uh, that he had a great visual flourish yes. uh, he worked with Greg Tonnant who of course went on to be cinematographer on Citizen Kane and in the talkie version in particular there's that amazing crane shot yes. of a model that looks so much like Kane there's that amazing roving sequence through the rain in the garden in yes. the talkie as well but even the silent version we talked a lot last time about this sequence on a staircase where the gun goes off the, and the lettering yes is actually hanging there yes, in the air it's, it's brilliant it's like you know that effect that they're using in Doom Patrol where one of, one of Crazy Jane's uh, persona says things and then the letters yes. actually hang in the air with yes. silver letters it's all very kind of Roger Rabbit yes. and also well, that Czech film I really like um, uh, Who's Gonna Kill Jesse where comic book stuff becomes real in the real world Yes. so when people speak in speech bubbles the bubbles are actually hanging there he was playing with all that in 1920 it's, it's very bold how um, long is the 1958 version? I think it's about an hour and a half it feels a lot longer than yeah. that um, yeah, it's got a lot of uh, a fantastic cast, but lots of pacing issues. So, we don't want to talk about films just to kind of do them down or, no. or, or rip into them. I mean, what's the point of doing that? I hate all that bad movies are good stuff. 
from the 80s. I hated it at the time when I was a teenager. I don't want to hold movies up just to kind of shoot them down. It just seems pointless to me. There are things about this 1958 version which are terrific and worth watching. And the, the main ones are Vincent Price and Agnes Moorhead, who we'll go on to talk about in a moment. So this may interest you, Dr. Shruti Narayan Swami, or it may not. But the director of the 1958, The Bat, Crane Wilbur, also uh, was, he was an action director. Uh, his first film was, I believe, The Girl from Arizona in 1912, something like that. It was quite an early silent. He did one of the early readaptations of, of The Bat, funnily enough. When The Bat was touring, but it kind of needed some of the dust knocked off it, he rewrote it. Because some of the dialogue that's in the silent one, it's um, particularly the knockabout comedy, it's it's good fun, but it does feel rather dated to yes. the kind of Max Senna era of slapstick comedy. Crane Wilbur, who made this 58 film version, did the same thing with the Broadway version. He also, this may interest you, it may not, uh, wrote the play of The Monster that was made into a film in 1925 by Roland West and starring Lon Chaney. So there was this period of time where Roland West really wanted to make The Bat as a movie and he couldn't get the rights. So the next best thing was mm. to get that play by that guy who also adapted The Bat, Crane Wilbur, and put Lon Chaney in it. What sort of monster does Lon Chaney play in He's a, The Monster? He's a disfigured man. Okay. They're, they're always uh, really people's reaction to victims of yes. war. Yes. Amputees, people who've got burns. Yes. That, that was really what Lon Chaney was, was reacting to. It's all the same stuff that you see in uh, von Stronheim's yes. Foolish Wives and in Charles Grosch's drawings from that period. I mean, it's interesting because we might go on to talk about Scorsese's being on at Marvel films again. This idea that this kind of melodramatic veering on the the superheroic, but you know, this kind of hyper real heightened form of cinema doesn't lend itself to serious subjects or to you know the avant garde or the highbrow. You know, there's a sort of every time Scorsese chips in with these observations, there's always this kind of highbrow middle lowbrow thing going yeah, on yeah that's veering very very close to just dismissing entire you know visual cultures I mean Scorsese I am side eyeing you collectively on behalf of South Asia <laughs> since we said earlier on that you've just discovered a missing uh, Indian film classic mm -hmm. uh, under the direct instruction of P.K. Nair maybe you don't want to be bad mouthing Martin Scorsese on the internet oh well you said it now there goes your job with Martin Scorsese. We could have been living the life of Ryan in uh, New mean, York. And you know, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, there's not one visual culture. And there are lots of other cinemas in the world which have developed. No, I'm not saying which do not connect to Hollywood. They do. Um, Indian cinemas in many forms connect with um other global cinemas but you know every visual culture has its own modes and its own significations and sort of that's it, a complicated it, word well you know 
know, I mean, every, every time sort of, you know, uh, you know, to be, you know, quite blunt, to be quite woke and cancelly about it, every time I hear a um, old autoristic American director shout at the clouds about what the kids are watching. The problem with writing off Batman as a piece of intellectual property as filler as you know kind of popcorn type of movie that's just there to get bombs on seats in cinemas is it ignores the fact that it's actually quite dense in terms of what Bob Kane and Bill Finger were drawing on which is the movies and we'll go on to talk about this but in terms of this Crane Wilbur play which became a movie The Monster which Ronan West directed Lon Chaney's there in Batman's DNA because Batman villains yeah they all look like these disfigured kind yeah. of Dick Tracy bad guys but part of the reason that that was part of the visual culture of the 1920s and 1930s is because that's what you saw in the street uh, but also you saw people who'd been injured and burned and lost limbs in war but you also saw it as a component of horror yes. in the movies and in melodrama and that's fed into the kind of DNA of of you know the Hulk monstrosity in in superhero things because superhero culture is at least in films is based on all the earlier film cultures which includes horror and which includes melodrama Crane Wilbur at one point was uh, interviewed about his background in cinema and he said my preparatory school was the Academy of Experience and I, and I was finished by the College of Hard Knocks so there you go Martin Scorsese with your autorism. This 1958 movie, The Bat, was made by a man who was finished by the college of hard knocks. He suffered for his art, and now it's your turn. <laughs> well, we'll watch a bit of the movie. We're not going to talk about the top of the whole movie because it's just not that good. No, it's not. But lots of, uh, lots of uh, meme-worthy moments. Bits. Vincent Price in a flannel shirt. Uh, with another with man a, in a flannel shirt. Yeah, with an ap- a cooking apron on, um, doing his best... Gendered household yeah, chores. serving, you know, best cottagecore vibes. <laughs> Doctor. Yes, John. What would you do for half a million? Anything short of murder. Why not murder? Too messy. Too great a risk? For half a million? Well, yes. so the two best things about this movie, and there are many things that make it worth watching, I think, but the two best things about it are the performances of Vincent Price and Agnes Moorhead. So in terms of trying to locate Vincent Price in the sort of broader culture in 1958, 1959, Shirty and what do you think of this music? Uh, it makes me want to put on my most voluminous poodle skirt and uh, <laughs> nip over next door to visit my good neighbour's wand and vision. Uh, yes, in this polka dot nightmare that you live in. I mean, you do have a, it must be said, a, a fecundity of poodle skirts. Yes, but I've got a washing machine too. <laughs> who needs, yeah, who needs to be in the possession of their faculties and who needs uh, feminism when they've... You can have consumer items. Exactly. Fantastic. 
Uh, yes, that this music is Vampire Bop uh, from <laughs> the 1964 film The Last Man on Earth, which is the Vincent Price zombie movie, Ooh. which is based on Richard Matheson's I Am Legend, which of course has oh, been refilmed okay. a bunch of times. The Omega Man and, yes. and the Will Smith I Am Legend being the other ones. But what I, the reason I'm playing this bit of music, uh, apart from the fact that it's cool, is it's hit, baby. It swings. Uh, Vincent Price was a cool cat. The thing I like about Vincent Price as a kind of figure in horror films in this period in the late 50s is that he's, he's a precursor of that kind of cool uncle. Yes. Who has a sharp mohair suit and a stingray tie and a kiss curl. Yes. And they're sort of a bit like Forrest Jackerman from Famous Monsters without being a nonce or Hugh Hefner. There's a kind of wink to cameras. Like, there's all this monster kid stuff to do with monsters and evil scientists and experiments and things like that, which is all drawing from spook shows, the fact that you, you still have these kind of, this very underground culture of stage magicians doing late night film shows and you could go along and there would be, uh, you know, medical experiments on girls from the audience and gorillas <laughs> running into the audience and yeah. grabbing the girls and uh, pretty creepy stuff yeah. for the most part. But then you'd have a kind of older brother figure or an older parental figure kind of winking at the kids in the audience with their bobby socks and their turn up their names just going we all know it's a joke isn't it and vincent price is kind of that guy yeah it's like having a sort of um hop aloof uncle who comes to uh, christmas dinners with his age inappropriate girlfriend yeah when i when i did that article about the that movie theater in scottsdale arizona which i'm obsessed with it was all accounts in the 1950s of people driving around in open-top sports cars in, you know, the women no doubt wearing voluminous poodle skirts, uh, looking for foreign imported linens. Yeah. And then checking out, you know, whatever Nouvelle Vague film was, was playing at the local art house cinema. Oh, saucy. It's, de- it's definitely that world. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, Buster Crab settled in Scottsdale, Arizona. Just saying... You know, a good place for fading Hollywood stars who who don't want people prying too much into their business to just quietly retire. James Dean ended up there as well for a bit too. It's Uh, D-E-A-N, not D-E-E-N. D-E-A-N, yeah. Yeah. It's far enough down the um, interstate that you can get to Los Angeles in a couple of hours for an audition or a meeting or something, but then you're kind of off the grid Mm. and kind of people leave you alone. And yeah, I think Vincent. I can I can easily imagine Vincent Price just going, you know what? I'm going to jack this all in, and I'm going to go and live out in the desert and live in some kind of Frank Lloyd Wright modernist house and paint, and you know, write articles for the Season Robot catalogue about Vermeer or whatever. I can easily imagine him doing that. And he is. I mean, he's he's a cool dude. Unfortunately. <laughs> This film, which pairs him with Agnes Moorhead, who is also a very cool woman, doesn't really bring out that side of him at all, really. It's just all very... Uh, It's no offence to Vince, but it's just not a film that's challenging him in any way. It's not not stretching him as much at all. No, no, no. But it's a shame in a lot of ways, because just the kind of... the way in which 
This music from The Lost Man on Earth connects Vincent Price to the cool future. Uh, it's composed by Paul Santel and Bert Schefter. Now those are two names that you might recognise from cool people doing cool, possibly risky stuff out in the desert, off the grid, no one in Hollywood's paying attention. Faster pussycat, kill, oh, kill! Uh, but they also did the music for The Fly, with Vincent Price in and the return of The Fly. So they had a bit of a track record with him. Motor Psycho is another soundtrack they did. Uh, they were certainly kind of branching out into, you know, Biker Girls Gone, gone Wild and that kind of stuff. There, there is that connection back to Vincent Price and this kind of cool world of Stingray ties and kiss curls and c c cottage core plant wearing uncles. Gay uncles. Well, they did. They weren't gay in 1958. That that hadn't been invented yet. is more music for films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. Wouldn't it be fun to have a friend who was invisible to everyone except you? And supposing he was a pirate, 